Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged shaped and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mor, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double read accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. It was your birthday recently, so I was going to call to call you and leave you a happy birthday song message, but I didn't. I just sent you lots and lots of birthday texts <laughs> and cry emojis. So happy belated birthday, Jackie. Thank you so much. I have to tell you that my students were so thoughtful this birthday, and I don't expect it of course, but it was just so sweet. So how did they even know it was your birthday? Well, they asked and they were apparently peppering Chris, my husband, who also works at Southeast with questions and things that I like and and whatnot. But it was so funny because my birthday this year was on a Wednesday and they thought they were being so sneaky. I knew something was up, but they knocked on my door on Monday And I was like, hey, guys, what's up? And they're like, happy birthday. And they came in with like (laughs) trees and gifts and stuff. And I was like, you guys are wonderful, but today is not my birthday. And they go, we know, but we just couldn't wait. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. But on my actual birthday, my student Adam shows up. And he has um, a friend, apparently, who's a graphic designer, and he had them do a portrait, an artistic rendering of my dog, Buddy. My God. If you know Buddy, it looks exactly like him. They went through my Instagram and found like the perfect picture. And I just thought that was so thoughtful and genuine and generous. And I just couldn't believe that they would do something like that. It was so heartwarming. And, you know, you and I have talked about you know, our, our students didn't sign up to be on a podcast. And so we can't really talk about them specifically too much. You know, it's not our business to go, oh, so-and-so hit this high note they've been trying on and blah, blah, blah. But I, I don't think they would mind me sharing that they were very kind and very thoughtful on my birthday. And it made me feel so good and just, uh, yeah, grateful for what we do. Oh, that is the best. And also anybody who knows you knows how much you love Buddy. So it's like the perfect gift. (laughs) It's the biggest aspect of my life being a dog mom, maybe more than a bassoonist. I'm not sure. Oh, but (laughs) how have you been lately? Very good. Uh, The weather down here has been perfection. And I got Mm. to go to New Orleans yesterday and play a chamber recital, which is I just love playing chamber music so much. And it was, it was a really nice experience. It was in a beautiful hall. And, um, you know, there were a couple of movements that just, you know, how every once in a while with a chamber group, like usually everything goes pretty much as planned, but every once in a while, something will be really special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happened yesterday. There were just a couple of movements that like sparkled and it was like you know that magic that we're looking for when we're performing it was just everything's 
coming together and the mood is exactly right and the colors are right. And I don't know, it's just really fun. And then afterwards, we went to a uh, restaurant that specializes in cheese and I ate a lot of cheese. So I got an artistic rendering of my dog and you got a lot of cheese. This is a good week for us. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Now at your concert, did anyone get on your nerves? You know what? Nobody got on my nerves. Well, that's too bad because this episode we're talking about musical pet peeves. (laughs) I have a lot to say about this topic. Go for it. I play a lot of second oboe and I was very, very lucky in my training as a student to get a lot of advice from really great teachers about not specifically second oboe, but, you know, etiquette within the orchestra. And I think there's a lot of things that can go overlooked that are not just coming prepared and playing your part. For example, something that I didn't know before I was taught is that the second oboe during the tuning aid, the second oboe should be the last one in the wind section to jump in. And you just play a quick little A, make sure you're in tune, and then you're done. Because if you jump in right away, you obscure the principal oboist A, Mm. and uh, then nobody knows which A to tune to. So that's something that I hadn't known before. Um, Also, I learned that when somebody around you has a solo, if you can help it, you know, try not to move. Try That's not the time to swab. It's not the time to get water out. It's the time to sit still and let that person concentrate. And don't turn and look at them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. When I was doing my roasted swan in Carmina Burana, that was so nervous about. There was someone who every time in the violin section would just turn around and it was like their eyes were boring into my soul. And I was just like, stop, don't look at me. I'm trying to focus. <laughs> anyway, continue. Yeah. Um, lately, something that I've been noticing is phones. I know it's it's really hard not to pull out your phone. I experience it too. <laughs> but try not to pull out your phone in a rehearsal. And of course, you know, I play mostly in regional orchestras. I'm not a full-time orchestral player in a major U.S. symphony orchestra, but it seems like it would be bad to have your phone on the stand or have, you know, be constantly checking your phone while you're colleagues are trying to focus. It just doesn't send the right message. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of my pet peeves are more like things I encounter in my day to day. Um, So one, I guess it's not technically a musical pet peeve, but it is really big pet peeve. So I'm just going to take this time to air my grievance. (laughs) Sending an email without a salutation. Oh yeah. Actually in all of my syllabi, in bold, it says, I do not respond to emails without a proper salutation that addresses me by name as Dr. Wilson. I, I don't know. It's just basically email etiquette. Don't email someone in a way that you would not speak to them. You know, you know what I'm talking about. I had an experience uh, last semester where a student emailed me, dear Mrs. Kaunitz, I have a question about blah, blah, blah. And so I wrote back and then I signed it, Dr. Kaunitz. And then he wrote back and he said, dear Mrs. Kaunitz. <laughs> I wrote back and I signed it, Dr. Kaunitz. And this went, this happened like four times. <laughs> yes. Pick up the subtle cues. <laughs> but my big musical pet peeve as a teacher is if a student shows up to their lesson excessively early and sits outside of your office doing nothing. (laughs) This is my biggest, you should not be late to your lesson. Absolutely. But if you have 25 minutes after the class you have ends before your lesson starts, you go find a practice room and you warm up, Mm -hmm. make use of that time in some (laughs) way that is not holding down a chair. And I have the misfortune of having some very nice sitting area right outside of my office. And I will have students show up. I'll hear them out there rustling (laughs) 20 minutes before their lesson. And I'm just like, you know, inside the studio flipping tables in (laughs) anger at that. So don't do that. Make use of your time. Make use of your time. Be ready for your lesson. Be warmed up. Be mentally ready. 
Come on, people. So we asked you guys, the listeners, what your musical pet peeves were, and uh, you didn't hold back. (laughs) (laughs) This had a lot of responses. You guys had stuff to say about this topic. Oh, one of the funniest ones was from Tasha, which is watching someone drink their reed cup water does it for me. Hashtag gag. (laughs) Full disclosure, I 100% do that. (laughs) I thought it would be so funny to do one of those surveys among double reed players of like, do you drink your reed water or does it gross you out? Because it seems like one or the other. Well, here's the thing. I use our double reed dish reed soaker cup, which Mm -hmm. does not have a cap. So every time I use it, it's fresh water. So I feel like it's okay. Okay. There you go. You just need a shot of reed water or something. (laughs) Greg says, I have a colleague who attempts to conduct in miniature along with the conductor doing rests, but is consistently a little bit behind the beat. That is so funny. I feel like the mini conducting is egregious enough. (laughs) Don't sit there like, you know, conducting in the rehearsal. That is very irritating. I have to say, I agree. Alex says leg shakers and excessive non rehearsal related talking leg shaking doesn't bother me as much but it it would if I were on a riser or something like stop shaking my chair excessive non-rehearsal related talking is a big one I heard a story recently about a student who was asked to play in uh, a regional orchestra and the entire section was pretty chatty so she was joining in the banter And somebody in the row in front of her got annoyed and requested that she never get asked back. (laughs) It can be an expensive mistake. Yeah. And, you know, just keep in mind, if you're a sub or a new person to the orchestra, you are being assessed on a different standard Mm -hmm. than the people who are contracted. So err on the side of caution and shut your mouth. (laughs) M says, when someone asks the conductor a question that could easily be answered by their stand partner, no need to waste the whole ensemble's time. And, you know, this type of stuff that we're bringing up, these pet peeves are kind of, I feel like, assumed knowns. And I've thought several times as a pedagogue, like how it's perhaps necessary in our studio classes to sit down and say, this is how you're expected to behave. And these are things that maybe you don't think are a big deal, but they are a big deal. And this is how you, yes, take a tuning note, ask a question within the ensemble. Like there are things that you kind of learn sometimes, unfortunately, by making a misstep and really irritating or alienating a fellow musician or losing an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Dylan says folks who continue to play the tuning note once they've met pitch, playing without shoes or socks. I feel like that's a given. I'm so sad that that happens. <laughs> no shirt, no shoes, no service. <laughs> People who don't meet dress code, performance dress code. That's a big one. Yes. Christina says excessive foot tapping that borders on or is stomping. <laughs> Ooh, this is a big one I've heard people complain about a lot throughout my career. People who spend all of a break of rehearsal practicing excerpts or solo rep. Mm-hmm. That is a big no-no that irritates people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if somebody, like if your principal, like, let's say you're playing Scheherazade and you're playing second, don't play the solo. <laughs> don't practice it. But I wish it was me. <laughs> and last, Jonathan says clacking of keys. And I know Jonathan, and I know that he is a noblest and as a bassoonist, I take this pet peeve as a personal attack. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. 
To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. So we all know that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know that you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries at the Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall, it's like a farmer's market, and it's filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their own reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers, and who knows, one day maybe your reeds will be for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool row. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. We are delighted to welcome to the podcast Mark Vallon, Professor of Bassoon at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. We always love to start by asking how you came to the bassoon in the first place. I think uh, what I remember, because that was a long, long time ago, uh, <laughs> is that um, I was supposed to learn the piano, and I saw I started playing the piano when I was eight or seven or something like that. And and somehow, you know, I struggled. That that was not really uh, working for my uh, sort of brain uh, setting. So uh, I had a very nice uh, piano uh, teacher who was very patient. And at some point he realized that, you know, I, I had really some interest in, and passion for music, but the piano was not the medium. So he had a friend who played the bassoon and he came uh, invite him to one of my lessons and i saw this uh, this guy taking his bassoon out of his case and start playing it and i thought this is it mm. this is this this is exactly what music means to me producing sound not just trying to find the right key at the right time you know so uh and and the next day i went to the local music school i started playing I, of course, there was a bassoon there that was waiting for me because, as you know, uh, it's not the, the, you know, the instrument that every kid wants to play. And then I started playing my five hours of bassoon and my mom went to my prof and said, oh, how can we stop this guy? He never, he never stopped. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't do anything else. <laughs> his, his high school grades have gone down like seriously. So... <laughs> So, and then he went off. That that was the beginning. I was about 13 when I started playing. Can you talk to us a bit about your educational journey, where you received your training and your experience in that? Yeah, so uh, so I was telling you my, my first um, experience as, as a student was in the local music school. You know, the system in France is differently organized than it is in the U.S., so there's no music really in high schools or in in middle schools. The the music schools are separate entity. They are different building. They're completely different organization. Um, So after my regular uh, school time, I went to uh, my music school and um, until I was uh, probably 18 or 19. And then I had my uh, sort of high school diploma and I got into the Paris Conservatoire, which at that time, it still is today the the you know the place where uh, young professional uh, musicians are going to be trained. So I spent four years then in in the Paris Conservatoire with Maurice Salah. That was that was basically my my path, you know, as a, as as an education. And then, as you know, you know, after your formal education is finished, then you start learning a lot of things every day in your life. But that that's a different topic. Could we hear a little bit more about your studies with Maurice Allard and just your experience at the Paris Conservatory in general? In America, I feel like we learn about that school in an abstract way as part of our woodwind education. We know of the pieces and we know of Premier Pre and that type of thing, but I would imagine it's a completely different thing altogether to experience it firsthand. So I'd just love for you to go a little bit more into that if you would. Sure, of course. Uh, the Paris Conservatoire, the, the structure is is organized uh, in a way that every year there are 12 students in uh, every class. So there's a really, really tough competition to get in. 
sometimes some years, you know, one or two students graduate. So you got two spots up and sometimes there's one, uh, sometimes a little more. Uh, so, so the, the really very, very competitive thing is to get in the conservatoire. And, and after you get in and you finish your time, at that time anyway, you were bound to be a professional musician. Uh, most of the kids I remember from my class all been, uh, you know, in orchestras, teaching jobs and so on. So it was the sure path. Wow. And it still is to a, to a certain extent, but not as, as clearly as it was then. Um, a sure path to a professional career as, as a musician. So the way it was organized was uh, something... <laughs> it's kind of funny to remember that now uh, that I wouldn't really advise to any teacher of the 21st century to, uh, uh, to do. Um, it was very old fashioned. So we were 12 kids and we had to wear a tie because uh, that was the formality of the, of the, of the scene. And we um, were all just, you know, standing in a room playing scales, love scales two times a week for four hours. So it was a really kind of intense uh, moment. And Alain was extremely, extremely impressive as a player. He was a fantastic player uh, on the French Besson, uh, but not at helpful at all as a teacher. So it was very, very judgmental, the, the whole uh, philosophy of the teaching. So we had uh, competitions every month. We had a sort of panel come to the class and then we were ranked from one to 12 every, at every session. So not much comments, not much, um, you know, uh, hints, tips, how to improve your playing, what to, uh, what to do to become a more, um, you know, accomplished musician, but a lot of uh, judgment. And if things didn't work out, the only solution we were told was just practice more. That's it. Mm. It was very, very simple and old fashioned. I read in your bio that you also studied chamber music with Maurice Borg. And I'd love to know yeah, more was, about what that was like. <laughs> that was, uh, that was interesting. I don't know if uh, any uh, of you know Maurice Borg is, is a kind of a really, uh, Interesting guy. He's, he's mostly is, uh, what I remember for, from his teaching, he is, uh, was that he would grab the oboe from our uh, oboe player and, and just play for 15 minutes to show him how to do it. <laughs> that was, that was basically, yeah. So we, uh, we, with the other guys, you know, we were in a quintet then most of the time. So the uh, only four, the all, all, you know, four of us were just patiently waiting uh, for Moise book to be done with this little show. And then we, <laughs> we uh, start playing again. And then the same little things will happen. So, uh, but he was really a phenomenal uh, player. So, so actually the fact just, Hearing him play the instrument, the reed that our guy was was playing, that was really really interesting. Uh, you know, he was a, kind of a phenomenal uh, tone producer. He would just make sound everything like Maurice Borg. It was kind of a unique uh, experience to hear him play. So that was not completely a waste of time. <laughs> Am I correct in assuming that at this time you were playing the French bassoon? Oh, yes, definitely. Could you talk to us about the French bassoon, playing it, its unique challenges? That's not something that we necessarily get to hear or experience every day. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, so, you know, when we talk about the French bassoon, there are, there are two things. I, I think there is in this country a lot of interest for uh, the French bassoon. Uh, and suddenly when you uh, hear recordings of uh, Maurice Salah, uh, you know, I, I think it's still today, you know, amazing the, the precision, the clarity of his playing, the, the, the absolute accuracy he gets. And so there are two things I think that when we talk about French Besson, we should, we should be aware of is the instrument itself and the playing style. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, in the 80s, uh, the playing style of the French bassoon was very, very old-fashioned. So we play super hard reeds. We suffered, I mean, uh, really the embouchure, uh, being able to, to hold uh, Vivaldi's slow movement was 
quite a challenge. It was extremely based on very uh, tight um, embouchure and, and basically uh, sound, 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 and technique. That was the only two things that Allah was interested in, making a really rich, beautiful sound and moving your fingers super fast. Now, the French basson today is a completely different, uh, the instrument has evolved a little, but the sort of conception, the general conception is completely different. So now you would hear French basson player on recordings. I've been experiencing that myself, and it's really sometimes even hard to say that if they play a heckle or, or a French basson. So the, the tone conception has really completely changed the way they make their reads, uh, the approach is a little more similar to, you know, the tone production on the German system than it was then. So, so when you hear uh, French Besson recording today, it's a completely different thing than Maurice Allard in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for people to know. Can you talk to us about the decision to switch to the German system and how your playing changed and, and what factors informed making that decision? Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I, I do remember the first, the first time, I mean, if I'm right, uh, when I, the first time I really experienced a, a, a heckle this one very close by um, was when Kim Laskowski came to Paris. Um, she was uh, a guest and I, actually, no, she came to Paris to study the French basson. She had heard, you know, recordings of Allah, and she thought there's, there's something I really want to do. So I think she spent one, one or two years in Paris. Anyway, I, we met, and uh, one day I was in her uh, apartment, and I, I saw this heckle basson. I said, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it looks like a big like <laughs> What is that thing? So she said, give it a try. So, and I remember playing, playing a medium C, and finding, wow, this is a different world. And that was, that was the first time, the first note I played on the German system. And uh, a year after, I started being a little more interested. I think my problem was that I had sort of gone around the French Besson and experienced some limitations, and definitely playing the bassoon was, was a, a very important part of my life. And so I thought, oh, maybe, you know, this is opening a new world for me. That, that's, and I was at the age where I could do this. So that's when I launched myself into, into the German system, pretty much learning on my own, which was not always a good idea, uh, <laughs> but, uh, especially for Reed. But, but trying really hard to understand the, the, the the difference, uh, the difference of conception, uh, and quickly I realized that even the way you produce the tone production, the reads, the fingerings, of course, everything is a different world. I mean, we—it's how when you have played both instruments, you realize that we're actually playing the same parts, but it's really, really a completely, completely different experience in terms of your uh, performing skills and. Uh, so so I, I launched myself and I thought I could play it because I had played the bassoon for so many years and I realized quickly that there were a lot of lot of very different things uh, between uh, of course both instruments but um, uh, but I think at the end uh, one of the important things I, I remember is that um, I took a lesson with Brian Pollard uh, I don't know if uh, Brian Pollard is a well known guy in the in the US. Uh, for Europeans, Brian Pollard is a kind of a legend. He was the first bassoon of the Concert Ribard, uh, orchestra for many years. Fantastic player. He, he made really an amazing sound. He played one of these BB vocals, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you've experienced that, the heckled BB vocal. It's one of these monster, uh, monster balls. It sounds more like a horn. Then the bassoon. Anyway, so I went to have a lesson with them and spend the day playing with them, and that was, uh, you know, the beginning of me trying to understand. Even today, I'm still trying to understand how this machine works, and uh, but definitely a big step, of course, uh, a bigger step than I thought it would be. Mm. Moving forward from your student days. Can you talk us through uh, your journey into the professional world and how you got to where you are today? 
You know, I, I think mostly what's interesting is not so much my own path, but how you would reflect on a young musician's path today. Uh, and I think uh, young musicians today have to understand that uh, uh, things have changed a lot since the 80s or the 90s. Uh, as I was telling you at the beginning, you know, most of my uh, friends who were in that Paris Conservatoire class, all of them got work somehow. Uh, so getting work at that time was a completely different kind of operation than it is today. Uh, I started playing uh, when I was 18. I was already uh, involved in the radio orchestras in Paris. I was a good student, uh, Allah like me, and he gave me all the work I, and even more, more work than, um, than I needed. So I started playing professionally very, very early. And, and that's an experience that... It's almost impossible for a young musician today to have. Uh, things have gotten a lot more competitive. The, the level, general level of playing is way, way higher than it was then. Um, so I think uh, young musicians today need a lot more patience than we needed back then in the, in the uh, you know, 80s. Oh, also, but anyway, so I started playing in this uh, this uh, radio orchestras very intensively. I was the sub. Well, people like me, I was uh, younger. I could play well, and I was ready to go to the bar with the with the boys after the show. So a lot of lot of <laughs> social social qualities and musical qualities combined together, and that's still something uh, that works today. I think uh, being socially uh, alert. And easygoing is a quality that still has an impact on your professional life even today. But anyway, so I started playing this orchestra for many, many years and I got kind of tired of it. I realized kind of early that uh, orchestras were not maybe the place for me. So I started playing a lot of contemporary music in small groups. I got to play with Boulez's group. Uh, at, at that time in Paris, there was like five or ten uh, small groups, all subsidized, because that's one of the great things of sometimes European countries, where uh, you know the arts are really supported and funded, and that was more a place for me. So I realized that a small group it was a better place for me. I would um, you know find my my contribution more uh, satisfying. And then I playing, I started playing some early music. So I got to, somebody gave me a Baroque bassoon that they had bought, bought in a flea market and I never touched it uh, until the day where the guy called me, called me and said, are oh, you going to help me next week? Uh, somebody let me down. And uh, we're recording the Handel Brooker's Passion and I need you. <laughs> so, <laughs> That was my, uh, you know, you can imagine that's uh, something that would not have so much happened today where early music is, uh, you know, taught in institutions and uh, in great institutions. So, uh, so at that time, things were also a little different, you know, you would, so I would um, uh, remember going to these recording sessions with a sort of a fingering chart on the top of my, on the side of my, yes. <laughs> On the side of my other music stand, F sharp. How do you play F sharp? Oh, too late. I missed it. I'm not sure it's a great recording, but I try to be as, as soft as, as possible. So, but that led to, uh, you know, playing a lot more early music. So I always had a sort of, you know, combination of contemporary music and, uh, and Baroque music, as early music, let's say as my main uh, interest and uh, main work uh, centers. I have so many follow-up questions, but I'll start with, could you tell us about your experience playing under Pierre Boulez? What was he like? That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was, well, Pierre Boulez, you know, he's, he's a kind of a, a monster of the 20th century, a monster in many, many senses, in many, mm -hmm. many uh, monster uh, fabulous memory, fabulous brain, but also not the most the easy guy to work with. You know, he's very, very demanding, and sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. <laughs> I remember once we we were playing the uh, Stravinsky Symphony for Instrument Avant, which is one of his favorite pieces by Stravinsky. You know, he has a really difficult, difficult rapport with Stravinsky. He's sort of uh, love and hate. 
And but the symphony for instrument album is one of the, his uh, favorite pieces by Stravinsky. So we were playing it. This is really really tricky uh, passage on the flute, a little scale in thirds. That's really really super fast and 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 E major or something like this. So we start rehearsing it, and the flute player completely fumbles it. And uh, so we let it stop, and we do it again. And again, the same thing happened. The flute player, you can see that he's completely disintegrating. And he, the more we do it, the, the worse it gets. <laughs> so the guy makes this terrible mistake of saying, I don't understand because it works so well in my living room. <laughs> and, and then Boulet said, well, maybe we should play the concert in your living room. <laughs> And everybody's going, all right, all right, all right. I'm glad I didn't say that. So not a really, really uh, easy person, very, very demanding guy. And for him, you know, technical uh, challenges are uh, obstacles that you needed to go uh, around. You know, he knew that music was difficult, but that was not his problem. Mm-hmm. Your, your problem was to uh, conquer these uh, difficulties and make it, make it possible. And that was his whole philosophy. And that's why now you go to uh, one concert of the Ensemble Un Contemporain, uh, Contemporain, and you hear just fabulous, uh, fabulous players who can pretty much play just anything. So uh, hardworking, um, hardworking guy, uh, fabulous uh, person to have met. Uh, I mean, I've heard recordings of him, but uh, hearing him live and watching him conduct that was uh, quite uh, quite an experience. In your view, what is the connection between the interest in early music and contemporary music? Because I see that a lot. You know, a lot of times people will be really, really interested in very early music and very new music. Do you think it's the sense of experimentation? Yeah, that's a, that. Yeah, I think you. I think you have a good point. Yeah, um, how could I say? Uh, I think in both these fields in both these experiences when you uh, with your baroque bassoon and there's a little cadenza to play uh, you feel like you're somehow part of the creation of the piece itself mm-hmm. which is uh, also the case when you uh, play contemporary music especially when the when the composer is here mm-hmm. uh, because that's one of that was one of my favorite things to do uh, when playing modern music com- freshly composed music was when the composer was there. So suddenly, you know, things change a lot. They're, they're a lot more flexible than we think. That makes sense. And, and, and you know, you sort of you participate in the sort of uh, creation is, of course, the, the kind of common word, but it's sort of a, something new is happening. Something that uh, has never happened before is, is just developing uh, right there under your eyes. And, and that's... Um, that's a really, really um, rewarding experience, which I don't always felt playing in beat orchestra, even if in, uh, I was lucky to play with some, you know, extraordinary, interestingly uh, fabulous conductors. It's not always the same uh, kind of satisfaction that way. Mm-hmm. That works for me really well. And I think for some uh, of the new generation of uh, new musicians, that's something they look for, that, that sort of uh, contribution that, more of a personal contribution to to what's what's happening on stage and also the fact that you feel that something new is happening a sort of feeling of uh, creation yeah you part of a, you help create something new i think that makes a lot of sense so Somewhere along the line, you transitioned to living and working in the United States. What was that transition like? Oh, well, that was, uh, that was, uh, I'm still in, trans- in transition, I should say. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I always tell my students and young musicians, um, when they, you know, sometimes you have your students coming to you and they're kind of worried about their future, aren't they? Very much so. Yeah, very much so. And my, one of my uh, answers is you have to be ready, but you have to be ready for a lot of things happening that you don't know are going to happen to you. And that move to the U.S. is, in my case, a good example. I was, I was kind of ready for it. 
somehow, but it was also com completely unexpected in something that I wouldn't have thought of uh, five or two years before it happened. The, 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 the transition was, my wife is American, and I always, it, one of my problems living in Europe is I had four um, part-time teaching jobs in great places. I was in, in the conservatoire in Paris, the other professional uh, conservatoire in Lyon, and two other um, sort of um, uh, music schools. And I was still traveling quite a bit. Um, and I got really, really uh, tired of the traveling. And I think that's something that led me to, to hope to get a sort of more full-time job where I had more stability. It came to the right time in my, in my age. And after playing so many concerts and traveling so much, I needed something like this, you know, a sort of stability. And I applied for different jobs and completely by accident, I heard the, about the job in medicine. And that's where my wife's from. And she said, medicine's a great place. You would survive there. So, <laughs> and I, I go, well, let's give it a try. And to my surprise, uh, to my big, big surprise, I got the job. And that was 15 years ago. And Things have been have been great. Uh, things have been really, really great. I really I learned so many, so many, so many things. You know, being here and being, um, you know, exposed to a completely different way of making music, of understanding music. It's been a great, great experience in many, many ways. Can you talk to us about developing your own style of teaching and pedagogy? You kind of express some maybe dissatisfaction in your environment in the Paris Conservatory and, you know, described it as judgmental and hyper-competitive. And I would anticipate those things would not go over well in contemporary American music education. Yeah, right. um, so how did you develop your own style in Europe and in America? Well, you know, I think I owe, I owe anything I've learned about teaching to, I owe it to my students, obviously, uh, who taught me how to teach. Um, I think when I came here, I'd still had a little of the model of the French model, which is, you know, uh, get your practice, get your practice down, spend all the hours, you have a problem, don't come talk to me. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, you know, uh, just do it. And um, quickly I realized that somehow uh, there was a different approach to this. So I think, uh, I think what I do now is, really try to 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 be helpful in any minute any 30 seconds and completely get rid of the old french judgment model so now i've i've taught myself to come to a a lesson or i have a student come to one of those lessons one of my double majors Students who uh, adore these guys—they're really super bright—and but they don't always have the time to, you know, from one week to the other to do a huge amount of investigation of the bassoon. So, um, so I learned to spend one fantastic hour just revi reviving all things, just talking about practice strategies. Mm -hmm. I think I think that's mostly where I have turned 360 degrees from my French. Uh, background is let's talk about this passage that doesn't work, how to practice this, how are the means, means, ways we can uh, create uh, for ourselves to, to, to make this uh, practice interesting. Uh, and that's maybe one of the things that uh, I've learned from my French background not to do. <laughs> We spend six hours in the practice room just doing mechanical practice. And that's, that is maybe what my students have taught me the most here is you practice every minute of it has to be deliberate, has to be goal oriented, has to be interesting. You have to find practice interesting. Otherwise you're never going to do it or you're going to force yourself to do it. And to quickly come back to my personal experience, but I think you can reflect on young musicians today. Uh, when I graduated from, from the Paris Conservatoire, after spending many, many years playing six hours a day of bassoon, I just stopped practicing. Mm -hmm. 
the day after <laughs> I was so burnt out mm -hmm. that I couldn't even open my bassoon case except of course to go to a gig. So that's something I learned negatively and I don't want any, any, any of my students to ever feel a little bit of this. I want them to be uh, happy practitioners and they taught me that and uh, we, we worked it together. So, so practice is always effective and we talk a lot about it. Are there any specific practice strategies that you have found work really well that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, on a bassoon, and I'm sure it's a little the same on the oboe, but on the bassoon, just playing the notes is already kind of difficult. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, just, just, you know, before, just anything, just playing the note. So I, I got a interesting in uh, how jazz musicians practice and they often uh, don't have that many downbeats as we have in our sort of classical training. Uh, so let's say um, what I have my students do to learn a difficult passage or even a scale to play a scale really fast is to change the downbeats. And that's, that's Ooh. something that, to, to think of patterns more than, so I have my students, for instance, play uh, the famous uh, Ravel. Uh, so after they, they sort of master, and they make a clear downbeat on the written downbeat, they now have them to uh, switch to the second note. It becomes the downbeat. And so on. And then the third note becomes a downbeat. And then the fourth note becomes a downbeat. And so on. So uh, that's one of the uh, jazz musicians' practice that I found the most, most uh, useful to learn fast passages, for instance. That is really uh, cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and also, uh, I don't know if I explain it really well, but um, uh, what it does, it, it gives you a test of, can I play this passage? Can I play it tomorrow? Can I play it today? Can I play it next week? So if you were able to play, uh, let's say, with changing, changing every downbeat at the speed you want it, then you have it. Mm -hmm. And you can switch, you can move to something else. Uh, it's a good way to really solidify your uh, sequence of notes in your head and your, in your fingers. So that's one of the examples. We do also a lot of patterns. Uh, you know, this uh, seventh, dominant seventh. Okay, but not always starting on an F, starting on the A, starting on the C and, and E flat and so on. So to, to really get a sort of more freedom because music never happens, never uh, rarely happens in, in written uh, music, in the actual pieces we play, the way we have practiced them in our practice rooms. Uh, so we got to be ready for a lot of uh, new possibilities. As someone who has played Baroque bassoon, French bassoon, German bassoon, I would guess that you've been exposed to a lot of different reed styles. What advice can you give us about reed making and reeds in general? Uh, okay. So I must say first uh, confession, I'm not, I'm not a big reed guy. I, <laughs> I, I'm very lazy. I do the minimum amount <laughs> um, because maybe as you said, uh, Jackie, maybe because I had to make so many, so many reeds for different instruments, but I think uh, an advice I would, I give to my students and I would, uh, you know, maybe give to uh, young musicians uh, to consider would be, you know, we all need to find something that really works for us. And we need to be able to just do this kind of strict discipline of doing pretty much exactly the same time, uh, the same read every, every time we can. So mi minimize the, the, the the variables just stick to something but in the same time experiment so leave a little time of your read making for exploration oh i love that we need to be able to have both uh, something that we need to have a read that works next week so 
only exploration and experimenting is not a good idea. But but sticking to one model forever without even trying to, you know, get maybe a better high register or better low register, that's also something we miss a chance if we don't do it. So, you know, exploring, experimenting with different shapes, different types of, of cane, uh, slightly different changes, but one change at a time. So if we change one variable, just change only one. Mm-hmm. But keep always that, uh, you know, exploration and, you know, factory uh, making of uh, standard reads. What are some repertoire or resources that you use as teaching tools that you find to be very effective? Um, well, over the years, I think I've um, accumulated a lot of music. For early music, for uh, Baroque style music, I always look at flute music. I think there's a lot of, uh, if you look at the fantasy, the tenement fantasy, and I have my student play them from the flute, uh, from the flute part, just changing the uh, the clef. So uh, let's say the first tenement fantasy in A major, uh, you turn the treble clef into a bass clef, and it becomes C major. Take three sharps out. Uh, if you have two flats, then it becomes five flats. That's that's a more complicated. Um, so reading from um, from flute music, I think it's very, very, very interesting because you really, really promote your uh, hearing of the music instead of just the reading of the music. Um, so that's one of the examples of, um, of music, of non-bassoon music that we explore. Uh, we look at uh, cello music, uh, very often when I have uh, just one movement of a Brahms sonata, the E minor first uh, Brahms sonata, and that's something, something you would play for recital maybe, but it's a fantastic piece of music and something really incredibly enriching for young bassoonists to, to learn. Uh, so exploring outside of the, the bassoon rap that most of us uh, know really well. There's also some climate music, that I've been playing with, like Pinericki. There's a really nice uh, three miniature for clarinets that works really well for bassoon. And also sometimes I write my own music because um, when you have something in your head, you want to hear uh, to hear that it happens. So I do spend a lot of time uh, arranging and composing music as well. And I cannot... Uh, emphasize for young musicians how important it is to do your own music, to write your eight-bar little tune and improvise on it. Uh, I think if I had to do, if I had to redo the educational system <laughs> of uh, teaching music, I would put improvisation very, very prominently on top of my list of priorities. But unfortunately, we don't always have the time to do this. Uh, but whenever I have a, an occasion, I think improvisation, reading music without, I mean, playing with the music without reading it is uh, something that makes a connection between your fingers, your head, your ears, that is actually invaluable. And I would do uh, any, any occasion I have to do that with my students, where I, I don't miss it. It seems like you really prioritize feeding the entire musician and not just the bassoonist and really sparking imagination in performance and teaching rather than just doing the same thing over and over again. And that's very refreshing. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that because uh, um, it's something that didn't work for me so well. Uh, You know, I have the biggest admiration for uh, people who, who win auditions uh, because they're able to uh, repeat something in a very um, accurate and consistent way. And somehow that's something that doesn't work with my brain. But I do respect it completely. And I have, the again, you know, um, admiration for that. But when I work with students, I think I'm able to tell very early on how their brain is wired. So, you know, some, not every brain is wired to do uh, orchestral excerpts really well every time. 
uh, I try to do a little of both and see what direction these guys are going. And, uh, and then feed them a little of this, feed them a little of this, but try not to be stuck in one, one way. Try to, as you say, feed them uh, with as much interesting material as possible and something that they would react to. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's one of the most exciting, as you know, guys, yourself, uh, being teachers, that's one of the most exciting things about our job, right, is to feed these people with stuff. They make them, make them leave the lesson with a smile on their face, you know, and that's something that has happened. As you look back over the course of your career, are there any highlights of favorite memories that stand out in your mind that you can tell us about? Oh yeah, I got so many. Uh, do you guys have three hours? Three hours? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I tell you a couple of things. Just before I left France, I had organized, just out of the blue, I don't know why I think of this, uh, a sort of competition for the young bassoonist, it was called. Uh, and and the, the idea was to invite kids who were under the age of 15 to come to the music school where I taught them and play a couple of pieces. And the first prize was a new bassoon that was given by Moosman. I was a um, good buddy with Baron Moosman, and he decided to do something a little special. And uh, I expected, you know, 20 kids to show up. We had 95 kids showing up from all over France, driving, uh, you know, overnight, coming from the south of France, driving for 10 hours to get that brand new bassoon. Wow. <laughs> win that brand new bassoon. That was, that was a really fantastic memory to see, to see these 95 little kiddos from the age of 8 to uh, 15. There's a huge culture of double reed instrument in France and in Europe, I think, in general, that we miss here. And I... I think it's partly because in in high school there's a band, mm-hmm. and that's for me. I, mean, I have a re- huge respect for band directors, but that kills us. Uh, when I was a kid, there was no band. Uh, the the whole French system is you play in an orchestra, and of course that means that you need oboes and bassoon as much as you need clarinet and flute. Mm-hmm. So so this is a completely different culture. And that's something I, I miss a lot, that kind of uh, lack of interest for our instruments. And it's partly because we're easily replaceable by, uh, by sax and uh, other metal instruments. Uh, so that was one of my, my, my big, uh, great, great memories to see all these kiddos. Uh, professionally, I, I remember a concert with Boulez. Uh, like you know you come out of the concert and you feel like you've done really something amazing i was lucky to record with a great orchestra the, on a on a baroque instrument on a classical instrument the mozart bassoon concerto with the amsterdam baroque um it's a really a fantastic bunch of players and i got so lucky i could to do this uh the piece that i started loving when I was a 12 year old. Yeah. A lot of, you know, a lot of really rewarding things in this, in this uh, profession that uh, I think a lot of musicians know that. And that's why they keep going and sometimes, you know, suffering and being, you know, annoyed and frustrated, but they know that there's something at the end and uh, they're absolutely right. It's a very rewarding job. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? You know, I, can I have two answers? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I think in the U.S., uh, a lot of emphasis on, on technical accuracy and a certain type of musicality that is more literal. So I think, I think musicians here in general uh, are very, very, uh, I'm always stuck by that, very uh, uh, close to the text, mm-hmm. you know, uh, following articulations, following dynamics, following, uh, they learn to that discipline of being very literal. Um, and that's, that's one of the qualities that is required here in this, in this, in this, in this country, in, in this continent. In Europe, uh, that is also important. I would say that uh, 
a little more panache, a little more flair, a little more creativity on stage, or even in addition, uh, makes a difference. It would be interesting, very, very interesting. Maybe that's a project you 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 want to work together uh, or, or to to develop or uh, to make happen. Is how differently uh, orchestral auditions are judged here than, let's say, in France, Italy, uh, most European countries. I think that the sort of uh, personality, the character, even if the sound is not exactly what they expect to be, that's something they value a lot more than here. That's my impression, where, where technical accuracy is really, really absolutely fundamental. So, so it's a two-pronged answer, mm-hmm. uh, making your life here in the U.S., making your life abroad. That's almost a little, you know, thinking a little differently about the music. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you so much. We hope you loved that interview with Mark Ballon. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can listen to us anywhere that you get your podcasts. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or YouTube, or our website, Double Read Dish. If you wouldn't mind leaving us a review on iTunes, we would very much appreciate that. Our next episode features the wonderful and multi-talented Stephen Kaplan, professor of oboe at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.